0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, if you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Did you take home ec classes in middle school or high school? If you did, do you remember anything about them? We're going to be talking about the origins of home ec and the importance today on A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, and welcome to A Taste of the Past here on Heritage Radio Network. You know, today, it seems that we remember only the stereotypes about home economics, as has been said and written about lately. Uh, you know, the old maids teaching skills that we are bored with and that aren't really very interesting or useful in life. we got to get back to math and science. And But public health experts and nutritionists and educators are beginning to realize that We need those skills that we were taught back in the 60s and 50s and even the 70s, like cooking. And it presents a serious problem. Americans are growing up ignorant about how to cook and how to eat healthy. In fact, uh, too many Americans simply don't know how to cook. So you could make a case that home ec is even more valuable than ever in an age when junk food is everywhere and obesity is rampant. And now, with the economy as tight as it is, looking for more economical and healthier ways to eat. Our diets consist high of a lot of highly processed foods that often are believed to have been made cheaply, more cheap than, uh, than cooking at home. Outside the home, they're made thanks to subsidized corn and soy, and, and this has contributed to an enormous health count crisis. More than half of the adults and a third of all children are overweight or obese, and chronic diseases are associated with this. Not to mention that the economy is As I said before, the economy is tight, and it's hard to feed a family on fast food that you go into McDonald's and easily drop $10 for one meal. Now, how are you going to feed a family of four? Well, stronger home economic curriculum could rebut the myth that heavily processed foods are cheaper. It really isn't so. If well, you, if we learn how to cook and use healthy ingredients, we could substitute things that could feed an entire family, such as chickpeas, for instance, that could feed an entire family in a healthy manner. We used to learn this in home ec. Yeah, okay, we also learned how to sew an apron and a few other things, but learning about nutrition ceased to be taught, and perhaps we should look at it again. Michelle Obama has taken a stand in, in bringing this back, and and certainly Alice Waters has made steps um, to increase the awareness of nutrition. When and where did it all start? Why did we start teaching people about home economics in school? And what were some of the political and economic ramifications? Today I have with me uh, Christine Baumgart-Huber, who is a writer who keeps a, a blog called The Austerity Kitchen, and it considers culinary and cultural practices of uh, of people often in financial crises, um, of let's say the common man, the yeoman diet, <laughs> as it was called in the past. And uh, she writes about these practices, past and present, in their historical context. Christine holds a doctorate in English literature from Brown University, and her work has been featured by Lapham's Quarterly, Roundtable, Descent Magazine, and Bon Appetit blog. And she is a contributing editor at The New Inquiry. The New, or they just, do they say the new, inquiry? <laughs> the new Inquiry? Recently, Christine wrote a terrific article called Working Man's Bread, and it was by and large devoted to uh, home economics and and a call for bringing it back into our schools. Welcome, Christine. Thank you, Linda, for having me on. What? Why in the world did you start looking at home economics?
3: Well, basically I was uh, conducting research for a book proposal that I've been working on, and it came across the work of Juliet Corson. And I became fascinated with this woman who was of humble means but decided to uh, publish her own cookbook and distribute it to the poor, and from there I started researching sort of the history of home economics, which some say she ushered in.
2: Hmm. And I know that um, just in doing historical research, there were a lot of different uh, government bills and uh, that that then followed her work and 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 required the teaching of nutrition. But she really, according to what I've read in and then in certainly in your article, she was really instrumental in in opening everyone's eyes to the need for, or and the efficacy of teaching nutrition and home economics.
3: Oh, yes. Yeah. She established the first successful cooking school, uh, the New York Cooking School, um, in uh, around 1876. And then in 1877, she came out with her 15-cent dinners for working men's families. And this really put her on the map as far as home economics is concerned.
2: Fifteen cent dinners. Wow. Um, well, mm-hmm. let's back up a little bit and tell me what. Tell me a little bit about her background and how she got into this.
3: Sure. She was born in eighteen forty two in a suburb of Boston, to a fairly middle class family. Her father was a produce wholesaler, and she moved to New York City at age six. There, she uh, fell under the influence of her uncle and um, his wonderful library, where she would read the Latin and Latin and Greek history, the classics. But this idol came to an end when she was 18 and her mother died, and she was forced to go out and work. She took up work at the Working Women's Library. Uh, She earned about $4 a week, not very much money. So this was her first taste of poverty, and she would later say that this really instilled in her a sense of empathy for the plight of the working poor. After the onset of the 1873 Depression, sometimes known as the Long Depression, she offered her services to the Women's Educational and Industrial Society of New York. Um, this was a free vocational school. It taught bookkeeping, shorthand, sewing. But the women there—they wanted to cook, and so the administrators tapped Corson to teach them how to do so.
2: Hmm. And she—I mean, she was really a believer that that healthy meals could be made for less than than going out and buying a you know a, a something in the street from a vendor, right?
3: Yes, that's correct, and in fact, when she was tapped to cook these courses, she didn't know anything about cooking. She said, I can make beefsteak, and I can make coffee, and that's it. But she did have a knowledge of German and French, and she started reading German and French cookbooks. Um, Even though it's not stated, I suspect she read the cookbooks of Henrietta Davidis, who was a very popular German cookbook author um, of the mid-19th century. And so she synthesized these two continental influences into what she calls a philosophy of her own
2: hmm interesting and and this um little book or pamphlet that she wrote the fifteen cent dinners for working men's families yeah uh, now where did whereabouts did that how was that distributed how if they're if they're working men's families and basically people of not much means, they wouldn't be going out and buying books, certainly not cookbooks
3: that's correct, and that's why. Corson, was very adamant about the fact that this pamphlet should be distributed for free. Hmm. Uh, She initially approached quite a few charitable organizations, but they were not interested in distributing it, so she printed the pamphlet herself, and she took out advertisements telling people to show up on her front doorstep if they wanted a copy, and thousands did, and in fact she received letters as well from as far away as China and Australia. Hmm. Um, and, And you know, I remind listeners that she was a woman of humble means. She wasn't rich. She was certainly educated, but she wasn't rich. And over the course of um, her lifetime, she spent about $6,000 of her own money distributing this book, which would be well over $100,000 today.
2: Wow. How did she do 15-cent meals? What, what was in that book?
3: Basically, um, she emphasized simple meals, so stews and soups. And in fact, I have a copy in front of me, and Corson, being a very organized woman, like I said, she was influenced by these German cookbooks uh, of the time, which were very organized, she sets out a daily bill of fare for one week. If we look at it, we see such meals as corned beef, and cabbage for dinner, baked beans, um, mutton and turnips. Um, for breakfast, there are such things as boiled rice and scalded milk, uh, Lots of broth, lots of lentils. She was a big advocate of such foods as lentils and macaroni, which at that time were fairly exotic.
2: Hmm. Well, it's not a whole lot unlike what we see today in the return to home cooking and, and healthier meals. It it's really mm-hmm. a lot of the same a lot of the same foods.
3: That's correct. And I and I feel that if there were crock pots around in eighteen seventy seven, she would advocate the use of them because <laughs> these were very <laughs> Very practical meals. We have to think that at this time, this was a time of great economic dislocation, much like today, where people are having to work part time jobs or jobs where they have to work overtime and their schedules are uh, unpredictable. It's the same situation at this time. So she needed to present meals that could be simmering on the stovetop if the worker came home late or if the children wanted to eat early. So these are very practical meals.
2: Well, it's interesting because um, practical and the training, as you said, for for things that could be long-simmered or maybe eaten the day after, which today is Mm -hmm. so important because few parents really have time to cook for the children, Uh, much much less they don't know how, a lot of many of them, but they also don't have the time. So Mm -hmm. these books would be very, very interesting. Well, um, you, in in your article, Working Man's Bread, and then I since went and, and visited quite a bit of writing, um, the um, Michigan State University professor, Helen Zoe Veit um, mm-hmm. wrote an op-ed in, in the New York Times a couple of years ago, and she's been interviewed on, on NPR as well. And she really makes a case for bringing back home economics. And one thing that I, I was interested that she says that you actually quote in, in Working Man's Bread, she said just by virtue of making foods at home, you're almost guaranteed to be making them much more healthfully than they would be if you bought them at a fast food restaurant or in in any restaurant, really. And that, I I really can't say that's even even so true, so true today, and and obviously it was true then, too.
3: Right. Yes, that's correct. Uh, Corson really advocated the, the cooking of nutritious meals at home, and she also advocated that the working classes should be aware of the abundance that was at their fingertips. At this time, because of um, improved technology and transportation, we have even more food available in the markets for the working classes and the poor. Food was more affordable, and so she wanted to teach them how to cook these foods. Um, Her courses at the New York Cooking School were very immersive. The students would go to the market. She would show them this is a a fresh cut of beef. She would show them how to pick out fresh fish, how to look for vegetables, and so she was really teaching the working classes how to navigate these markets that were literally overflowing with this kind of new abundance. And also, um, sometimes dangerous abundance, because we have to remember that the you know, Pure Food and Drug Act did not go into effect until 19, 1907. Right. So it's, it's still fairly dangerous. You have to know when meat is tainted and, and when fish is fresh.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because uh, she brought in the nutritional and the and the economic, and then mm-hmm. came the political. Tell me a little bit mm-hmm. about what happened with her book and and how the popularity led popularity of her pamphlet led to a little trouble for her.
3: Sure, um, labor organizers suspected, or rather, they initially said that. 15-cent dinners for workingmen's families was going to um, exert downward pressure on wages. They said if employers found out that their employees could live off a of 15-cent day, then why should we even pay them the wages that we pay them? Hmm. This was quickly dismissed, and actually she won the favor of the labor newspapers. They said this this is a necessity. And Corson herself said... You know, I, I hope to see them win equitable working rights. But until that time, I need to show them how to live comfortably, um, as possible.
2: Interesting. Yeah. So, and and you know what? I didn't um, let our listeners know if we did a tr- a quick um, uh, translation of what fifteen cents today would mean. About how much would that be in sure. today's economy?
3: That would be about two seventy eight. Um, which, I mean, you could say perhaps, you, you know, you could do similar meals for, I would say, an equivalent cost.
2: Hm. That's, that's a pretty economical meal, <laughs> under $3 for a meal. That, right. That's, that is um, a lot to be learned from that. Well, I want to get a little bit more into the political as we go forward on our call mm-hmm. for a return to home economics, right after we come back from a short break.
1: You're listening to Southern Pretender by The Four Lincolns on the HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
3: Wake the children, clear the halls. This is something we have been through before. Not again. If our lives depend on it, it's
1: so political.
3: White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years full circle return to sustainable land stewardship, humane animal stockingship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com.
1: We all know what a foodie is, but what's foodiness? Foodiness is turning us into those chubby, slushy, slurping, lounge chair-bound morons in Wally. Plugged in, pumped full of sugar, and brain dead. Chef Erica Wides is here to fight against foodiness. You have to keep drinking the Let's Get Real Kool-Aid for it to start to work. Let's Get Real. Rediscover real food every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
2: Hi, we're back on A Taste of the Past, and I am speaking with Christine Baumgart who is um, the blogger who keeps the Austerity Kitchen blog, which is just, Christine, I just have to say, your writing is is marvelous, and I've enjoyed each piece that I've been reading um, in The New Inquiry. Is it New Inquiry, they say, or The New Inquiry? How do they say? Uh, the New Inquiry. <laughs> okay, good. Um, and, uh, and actually, we were talking about you know home economics um this the um, juliet corson who who introduced the study of nutrition and, and well not nutrition so much but economical cooking uh, to people clearly on a tight budget back in the um, the late nineteenth century, but yet you wrote another article that I read in dissent magazine mm-hmm. about that the the diet in um, sort of poverty-stricken Victorian days, was actually quite healthy. Uh, Yes. Go on. Yes, it
3: was. It was was quite healthy. Um, Typically when we think of Victorian working-class diets, we think of Dickens and that sort of proverbial uh, cup of gruel, but indeed
2: they had a very varied diet. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. And, And I think it's basically those are probably just skills in another society that were just continually passed down. And, mm-hmm. of course, with a lot of uh, families both having working parents, we don't have a lot of those skills being passed down today. <laughs> the disappearance of home economics courses, they didn't pass down. But, you know, it's funny. I did a a little, oh, a brief, very brief survey on Facebook and, and Twitter asking people what they remembered about home ec. And largely the responses I got was, oh, you know, we learned how to make cookies or it was a waste of time. Or, well, I learned how to, to sew, as I said before, an apron, sew an apron. And then, of course, the comments that a lot of the, the guys from an earlier age wanted to take home ec, but they couldn't, they had to take shop. And a lot of women who wanted to take shop couldn't, they had to take home ec. But then finally, they, they changed this course. I mean, home ec is still offered in the schools, in some schools, um, correct? I mean, it's not totally gone
3: Sure. I mean, I, I took it in the in the early 90s, and um, I recall my sister, who's who's about 10 years younger than me, she also had the uh, chance to take home economics. So it, it's still around. Yeah.
2: They don't call it home economics anymore. They call it a yeah. freshman survey or, what is it, um, family... And, and consumer sciences.
3: Family and, and consumer that, science.
2: You know? Yeah, facts. Mm-hmm. Family and consumer sciences, right. <laughs> uh, but really, I think what's happened is... Uh, you know, we've sort of forgotten uh, to really focus on healthy eating and cooking and and too much of the, uh, the general home skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, you stated something uh, that really rang with me in your article, Working Man's Bread. You said, the kitchen anchors the country's economic, social, and political life, and the cook, right. as its figurehead, exercises far more influence over its course than is commonly thought. Talk about that a little bit. What, how much influence does the cook in the kitchen have?
3: I think enormous. I mean, I truly believe that you know, revolution does begin at home. Uh, the choices that the cook makes, he or she can model for his family and friends a more mindful means of consumption. Instead of say choosing you know factory farmed meat or shopping at Walmart, they can choose to invest in the community. They can buy local or they can uh, purchase a CSA. And so I think from there, you you know it can go from perhaps considerations of larger uh, political problems. So I, I do think that the cook can model, a more mindful uh, means of consumption. Mm -hmm. And I think that becoming aware of the origins of one's meals, one tends to become more aware of the social environmental costs of those meals. Um, We learn that nothing is without consequence. And so, you know, around the dinner table, I think these very kind of basic lessons can be learned.
2: Yeah, interesting. And it's, you know, it's for all the, the throwaway comments that a lot of people made in my little, as I said, my little survey about what did they remember from home ec, there were mm-hmm. also the, the comments that were, that were really appreciative of the course. And they said they mm-hmm. really learned to uh, make real food, to make something homemade, things that they, they never forgotten that they still use today. And I mm-hmm. think, by and large, what they learned probably is a respect for the kitchen, which you speak about as well.
3: That's correct. And here I think perhaps we can learn from Julia Corson. Uh, if I were to see home economics return on a kind of large scale, I think perhaps it should be more immersive, that students should visit the markets, that they should see how food is grown. I would like to see perhaps it begin in the first grade and continue to the eighth so that there's kind of a familiarity um, that, that people can enjoy with food. And so it's not just a matter of three months of, you know, making a pineapple upside-down cake and a few chocolates and then not doing it again, but really it, it, it should be there to kind of foster a confidence and a familiarity and a, and a knowledge of food, uh, which is important, I think, especially nowadays when we have a food industry that seeks to, I think, prey upon our ignorance.
2: Right, right. Well, you said today, cooks today must defend against the more insidious enemy, a modern food industry that profits from that ignorance. And, and right. Blights with degenerative diseases such as uh, type 2 diabetes obesity we went through all that um, mm-hmm. spawned by those fast food goods or the overly processed um, foods and 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 genetically genetically modified goods that we're we're seeing all too often in the market
3: right that's correct um yeah. I think that you know, I don't like this word, but I think that home economics could be used to create a more empowered individual who who exercises more control over their health and well being, and that of their family and friends.
2: Right, right. Um, I mean, if if we, I think kids are there are programs, as I mentioned at the top of the show, there are some programs that are are gaining a little bit of traction, but they're really, mm-hmm. unfortunately, by and large, privately funded, a little bit of federal mm-hmm. funds, but. Um, wellness in the schools is, mm-hmm. you know, is getting going. Um, I mentioned Alice Waters' Edible Schoolyard, um, but mm-hmm. in usually they're individual on a school by school basis, and and this is unfortunate um, that it can't be overall. And I, I guess we have to think of a better name for it <laughs> than home economics. Yeah. Um, they are
1: yeah,
2: Anti anti modern food market industry. I don't know <laughs> something to right. But we have to get back our health and and, uh, teach our kids to to be mindful. Mindful eaters. I think that's a word we hear coming up a lot is is mindful eating.
3: And and I think also we have to be careful because at least in the 19th and early 20th century, there was kind of conservative impulse behind home economics that it should be used to sort of teach the working classes or the poor to kind of just make do so that they could perhaps work, you know, under unequitable working conditions. And and I I think that we have to have a more progressive home economics, Mm -hmm. Um, certainly today. uh, It shouldn't just be a, a way of dealing with austerity. Certainly that word is once again on everyone's lips. Um, so I think that it, it definitely has to be a more progressive program rather than just teaching people to make do or to make a bunt cake, um, but rather it should be more immersive. And it should, I think, teach children and young people to be a bit more suspicious of some of the industries, the healthcare industry, the food industry, whatnot.
2: Yeah, I think that, um, and, and you were right to point it out, that Americans are growing up ignorant about the food mm. industry by and large. Right. And, uh, mm-hmm. Um, and a couple different uh, people who have written on th- this um, wave of of trying to reinstitute some type of of nutrition and cooking um, mm-hmm. education that the change will only happen with we the parents of children demand it, and uh, mm-hmm. and not only just uh, as you say to learn how to cook and 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 a course of nutrition, but as you said to to arm ourselves against mm-hmm. um, what's happening to our food and to make choices for real food.
3: And I think so, and I I think that people will begin to see that buying organic, buying local, is not nearly as expensive as we assume. I recently signed up for a CSA. It's it's, it's the first time. I always thought perhaps it would be too expensive when I was a graduate student or as sort of an itinerant writer, but i now that is actually a very economical choice, and, and the food is
2: fantastic. But mm-hmm. I had to learn that, mm-hmm. and, and you have to, we, and you have to learn what to do with some of those things that come in your basket.
3: It, <laughs> exactly. Yes, every week is a new adventure.
2: Yeah. When winter comes and you only get root vegetables, you make a root stew. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've grown very fond of kale. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Now, your um, your blog, Austerity Kitchen, is it that you? It's interesting that you chose that title. And tell me a little bit why you chose that title. And do you and because you focus mostly on um, on political era of of, of uh, depressions or what?
3: Yes, and in the beginning, yes. I started it in spring of 2009, about six months after the market crash. And uh, certainly austerity was on everyone's lips. So I thought, oh, perhaps this would be an interesting theme for a food blog. Also, I was working on my dissertation, which was on the Victorian working classes and their domestic lives. Mm -hmm. So I started off, but since then, um, the topics have broadened. And when I joined the New Inquiry about two years ago, I was really able to kind of I suppose uh, achieve my vision, and now I really use food as a metaphor for di- discussing all sorts of situations, uh, large and small. I found
2: that food really is history skeleton key, and i've I've had quite a bit of fun with it all right well, the cultural um, history that you bring out in these articles is mm-hmm. is very interesting and very useful information as well I might add and, mm-hmm. and I've enjoyed that and and I uh, urge people to, if they have children in school, to to make uh, a plea for more interesting, more involved courses on not just home economics, but as we mentioned before, about about the food industry and what food is and where it's coming from. I think this um, there's an exhibit here in New York City at the American Museum of Natural History called the Global Kitchen, and that is helping to um, to educate students as well. And I think there's a lot to be done in in our country, particularly on things that will help a lot of problems, um, not just obesity, but um, bringing real food back to our tables. Um, thank you. Christine, thank you so much for sharing your information and your time with me today. And I look forward to more. Uh, there are so many different topics. I could pick any one of your articles and we could make a whole show. So I hope you'll, I hope you'll come back again and join me on A Taste oh. of the Past.
3: I would love to. Thank you, Linda. Okay,
2: and thanks for listening. Again, this has been a taste of the past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio.
1: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network.